free through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. Thank you that that avails for us just as much for us here in the 21st century as ever it did. And we pray even so come Lord Jesus. I think of those who are sick, um, a number of them. I'm uh, thinking of Eli King and Anna Stolzfus, Melinda Byler, Eli Mast, uh, also Jonathan Stolzfus and Alta Byler, and others, Heavenly Father. I pray for your grace and healing in their lives um, and comfort in this time. Um, and for whatever you have for them, I pray, Lord, that they would be willing to say amen to your will. I think of the, mine, the ordination at Mine Road Church this evening and pray for that, pray for the future of their church there. I think of Arlen and Larry sharing the lot, their wives, their children, their families, and pray that in all things you could have preeminence and honor and glory there. As Glenn comes to preach the message, I pray that you would especially endue him with power from on high, Heavenly Father, um, and give him that which he needs as he shares what you have given him to share here today. I pray that our ears could be wide open and our hearts as well, and that you could receive praise and honor and glory for everything that's said and done here today. And as we go from here, this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath, hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And you may be seated. Several weeks ago, a tornado swept through a farm just south of here, and on that farm was a man standing, I'm sorry, stranded 
in his barn. He didn't have time to run to the house to be with the rest of the family. So he um, intuitively looked around and found the heaviest piece of equipment he could find. And he gave that thing a great big bear hug. And when the roof blew off and part of the wall collapsed and the dust settled, there was a tractor with a man hanging on for his life. Now this farm and this barn was in the eye of the storm. Now we had some wind and rain like you did at our house, and some of you had water in your basements. Some of you had water coming through your roof, and some of you had both. But my point is that this man hanging on to his tractor was at the center. He was at the eye of the storm. Today we'd like to talk about idolatry, but there's so much that goes into idolatry that sometimes we get distracted by um, the fringes of the storm, and we never get to the center, the eye of idolatry. So that is my goal this morning, to work our way from the outside into the center, into the eye of idolatry. Uh, Before we uh, talk about idolatry, we want to make some Uh, or define some words. Um, Idolatry is the worship of idols, and so we need to define what an idol is, and we need to know what worship is in order to understand idolatry. The word worship is a combination of, of two old English words, worth and ship. Now, the word ship we still use uh, quite a bit today, and it means quality. We talk about friendship. This is the quality of being a friend. We talk about sportsmanship. This is the quality of being a good sport. Or craftsmanship, the quality of your craft. Worship then means the quality of your worth or being worthy, declaring value. Why do we worship God? We worship God because he is worthy. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. A central part of a Christian's calling is to declare that God is worthy. In the Bible, we see two different ways that worship is mentioned. One, in bowing down or uh, reverence, and two, serving or offering or sacrifice. I'm suggesting that worship involves all of our being in three areas that I want to mention specifically, listening, speaking, and doing. When we listen, we're observing, we're hearing. When we're speaking, we're telling We're rehearsing, we are remembering what God has done for us. And when we're doing, we're serving, we're sacrificing, we're offering. Worship is a response to God. God first reveals himself to us. And and that's listening. Second is acknowledging God, ascribing the worth that is due him. And the third is our response to God, obedience, a living sacrifice. You cannot live for God until you know him, and you cannot know him 
until you hear about him or from him. We call this gathering here this morning a worship service. And we're gathered today to hear from God, to give him value, and, and the worth that he deserves, and to offer ourselves in service for him. Worship is a package of listening to God, recognizing his worth, and living for him. In the Old Testament, before the law was given, worship seems a bit vague, or maybe haphazard even, during the time of the patriarchs. We don't read of them uh, being given much direction on how to worship. But one thing is clear, they were to worship God, and God alone. In the days of Moses, um, there was much more instruction given. The law was given. There was detail, uh, how to worship, where to worship, and who should be involved in worship. There was also, uh, we can read about in Leviticus 23, large formal assemblies, and these were called convocations. In Leviticus 23, it says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work in it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. The Passover and unleavened bread, these are feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for, se- for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no, do no customary work on it. Large formal gatherings where they gathered to worship. The tabernacle was a holy place. The very design of the tabernacle communicated to the people of Israel that God was near them. He was with them, but he was also separate. He was holy, and they were somewhat separated from God. God was in their midst, and yet somewhat distant. He was approachable, but only with the aid of a mediator or priest. There was a proper way and time to worship God, and certain offerings were required by certain people. The outer court of the tabernacle was somewhat accessible. The inner court was more holy, and only the high priest, once a year, could go beyond the veil. There was holy people in a holy place during holy times. All of these were spelled out for them and given in the law. Some of the things about worship in the time of Moses and under the law are hard to grasp or hard to understand. But one thing is very clear. They were to worship God and God alone. The first commandment that was given to Moses says it clearly. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, even during this time of worship where, where, where things seemed to be very spelled out and formulated, God was also working in the hearts of the people. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, we read that God, uh, through Moses, teaches the people to store God's instructions in their heart, to teach them to their children when they are sitting or standing or walking, and to put their instructions on the doors and have constant reminders 
of who God is. A constant call to worship. Worship of the heart. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord was angered by his people because they were offering sacrifices, but in their walk with the Lord and in obedience to him, they had gone backward and not forward. He was concerned about their heart. Isaiah's rebuke is even more harsh, and I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God was concerned, not with their sacrifices, but with their hearts. The prophet Samuel tells King Saul that, in God's eyes, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience to God is the ultimate worship experience. God puts a premium on obedience, and without obedience, our lifted hands are full of blood guiltiness, and we become a mockery to God's holy name. Micah 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn child? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Even in the Old Testament, where it seems as though all the worship experience and sacrifices were spelled out, the clear desire of God's heart was to be in control of our heart. Now, when Jesus took up residence on the earth, he visited the temple on occasion, but mostly we read of him worshiping in synagogues. On one occasion, Jesus spoke very clearly to a question with which location is best suited for worship. In John 4, he said to the woman, I'm sorry, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you, say, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship when when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, when he was here on earth, agrees with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Samuel. True worship is not a place or a process, but it is in worshiping God and God alone. In Matthew 15, Jesus discusses with the scribes and Pharisees after they accuse Jesus and his disciples for not keeping the traditions. And Jesus says, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These folks had lifted their man-made traditions to a level of God's law. Jesus said, you can say the right things, you can be at the right location for worship, but if your heart is full of rebellion, you are not a worshiper of the one true God, you are an idolater. Paul's letters give um, many details of the early church, but one thing that seems to be missing from Paul's letters is instructions for worship. He does say that we should gather and not neglect that practice. And he gives some corrections to the practices that he mentions in some of his letters, but generally he speaks little of worship. In Romans 12, however, this is addressed. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. It seems as if the reason Paul mentions worship so little is that he expected our entire lives to be an offering of worship to God. In chapter 15 and verse 16, he says, God gave me the grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul's life was given as a priestly duty, as an offering or a sacrifice back to God. Preaching the gospel for Paul was an act of worship. He was obedient to the Lord's call. When we tell others about the value and worth of our Savior, we are worshiping. In the Old Covenant, God required the Israelites to serve him through the priesthood. The established sacrificial system in the temple where he dwelt. In the new covenant, we are the temple. We are the dwelling of God. And just like the temple was a continual flurry of worship activity, our lives must completely be given to sacrificial offering of giving ourselves back to God. The places and practices of worship have changed some throughout the years. But who we are to worship and why we are to worship never changes. We worship God 
and we worship God because He is worthy. Some would say that we worship because we were created to worship. And that may be right, but I have not been able to find Scripture to back that up. I have found that all who ever worshiped God did so because He is worthy of our praise, our adoration, and obedience. We worship God because He is worthy. Now we want to look a bit at idolatry in the Bible. There are many different false gods mentioned in the Old Testament. And the road to idolatry seems wide. There are seemingly an endless buffet of Baals and Molech and Dagon and Chemosh. Idolatry presents a very wide path. Ashram were poles or posts that, present, uh, that represented the goddess Asherah. In Second Kings, they set for themselves sacred pillars of Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. There were teraphim that were smaller household gods. In Joshua 24, 14, put away the gods which our fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. There was Baal, a monument of carved stone, a statue stationed at a place for worship. There were sun gods and false gods of the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars. There were various ways to worship and represent each of these false gods. Many methods were disgusting, cruelsome, full of lewdness and filthiness. And many of the Israelite kings were led into idol worship. I would like to look at one glaring example of idolatry in the Old Testament. And you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 32. While you're turning there, back in Exodus 20, God spake the law to Moses, who was to indicate, or sorry, who was to dictate the law and teach the children of Israel to live. And God started out by telling Moses this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And he goes on to teach Moses about the altar and how to build it. He gives laws for servants and how to handle violence. There were laws for animals, laws for property. There were Sabbath laws, the holy days introduced. He gives instructions for the tabernacle, the place where God lives. He tells them what the priests were to wear, what they were to sacrifice. He sets apart Aaron and his sons, and he tells them what to offer and when to offer and how often to offer. He tells of the labor, of the oil, and of the incense. And all of these instructions took a great while. And in chapter 32, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And this is the eye of idolatry. It is the center of idol worship, to give credit to a created thing for what only God can do, to credit something other than God for what he has done, what he is doing, or what he will do. Verse 5, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. The eye, or center, or core of idolatry is giving credit for what God has done to something else. The Israelites credited the preservation of God's chosen people to an idol they created when, in fact, God had miraculously delivered them from Egypt. He had sent Joseph ahead of them years before to prepare the way for them to be preserved, to be saved. And he led them out with a strong right arm, which was heavy against the Egyptians until they begged them to leave. God did it, not the calf. And when they credited the calf for what God had done, that's idolatry. The preserving of self is at the core of idolatry in the Old Testament. They ascribed to idols what only God could do, preserve them. In Numbers 21, in verse 4, we have the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it says that when they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom... The soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a serpent, and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. God miraculously preserved them with a bronze serpent. He created a way for them to be healed, to be saved, 
and to be preserved. In 2 Kings chapter 18, about 800 years later, we read this. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, and he broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. This bronze serpent had survived for 800 years. No doubt the story was told and retold. The irony of being delivered from the fiery sting of the serpent by looking to the serpent on a pole. This act had preserved the children of Israel. This deliverance had saved them and preserved them. It had given them life. This 800-year-old relic was part of their culture. It was their heritage. They were alive and breathing now because their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had the courage to look at this serpent on a pole. It was carried among them and worshipped for 800 years before Hezekiah destroys it. Why would Hezekiah destroy a relic that had preserved an entire nation? They were crediting Nehushtan for healing them and saving them and preserving them when it was God and God alone who had done it. It was idolatry. When we credit being preserved or sustained or saved, and we give that credit to something other than God, it is idol worship. In the New Testament, we also read of idols. In John 5.21, it says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Colossians 3.5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, which is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day adulterers. They were worshiping the wrong gods. They were unfaithful to the one true God who was standing right in front of their very eyes. They poured over the scriptures, longing to see the Messiah, but they missed him because of the idolatry of their hearts. They wanted a Messiah to provide national freedom and relief, but Jesus came to provide spiritual freedom and eternal life. They desired a Messiah who would stand for their injustices, who would fight to deliver them from the Romans, someone who, would, someone who could restore national pride. Jesus said his kingdom is not from this world. Some of my observations. I've heard many things being given the label of idolatry. Sports, entertainment, hobbies, work. 
Idolatry is ascribing glory that is due God to something else. I've never heard anyone thanking the NFL or Major League Baseball for saving them. I've never heard anyone say that entertainment or a hobby has preserved their life or has helped us get to where we are today as a church. They may be vices and they may be weights that we need to cast off, but I would not classify these things as idolatry. And they are certainly not at the eye of idolatry or the root cause. I personally feel that we are way off on what we label idolatry. And these next few minutes may be a little uncomfortable for some of us, but I'm not preaching to people who are not here. I'm preaching to us. So I think that we should address idols here that are found here and not ones that are found in India. I want to begin my observation at the edge of the storm and work toward the center until we get to the eye of idolatry. I feel that the most idolatrous people are found in North America, and in particular, United States of America. I believe idolatry is all about self-preservation and ascribing salvation and preservation that God provides to something else. And just like the leaders of Jesus' day wish for preservation in the form of national security or a national identity, I believe that we ascribe too much glory to America as a place of salvation and preservation, when clearly God is the Savior and provider and protector. Our security is not found in a nation or national movement, but it is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Nationalism is an idol we face and will continue to face. It is God and God alone who preserves us. We've zoomed in from the world to America. Bear with me a little bit while we continue to hone in on the eye of idolatry. In America, there's a little place called Lancaster County. In many parts of the world and in many parts of our nation, people need to work hard to scrape together enough of coins to buy their next meal. Here in Lancaster County, many of us have ways of making money in our sleep. We have made money, and now our money is making money. We have no needs. We have more than enough. We have stewarded well and stored much. We have need of no one to help us. We have preserved ourselves, and we do not need God to do it. I'm stating that strongly, but you get the point. To discredit our need for God to sustain us is idolatry. It is God who preserves us. And when we ascribe to riches the preservation that only comes from God, it is idolatry. We're going to keep zooming in. In Lancaster County, there's a place called Weavertown. And in that place, there's a little church called Weavertown Church. That's us. And we're going to get real close to home here, so bear with me. More than any other church I can think of, 
We here at Weavertown have fathers who have given us a heritage. They have handed us something of value. We have followed their footsteps. We have emulated them. After all, it was our ancestors and spiritual fathers who charted the course that we are on. And we say that we owe them our lives and a debt of gratitude. Here at this church, we have long-standing traditions and a good, strong heritage. But when we ascribe to men or to a group of people what really belongs to God, it is idolatry. It was God who saved you. And it is God who keeps saving you and God alone. Menno Simons did not save you. Jacob Amon did not preserve you. And Menobichi did not sustain your soul. But it's important to us to be identified with all three of these men. We are Weavertown, Beachy, Amish, Mennonite Church. All three of these men are represented in our name. It's who we are. Where is God? Not on our sign. That's reserved for Menno Simons and Jacob Amon. At times I worry that our heritage has become Nehoshten. We've been preserved all these years by the faith of these men. It is God who preserves us. It is God who saves us. And it is God who sustains us. When God has preserved us and saved us eternally and we ascribe that to a man, that's idolatry. We're almost at the center. We've zoomed in from North America to the United States and to Lancaster County and this church. And we're going to go one step further. And we're about to step into the eye of the storm, the eye of idolatry. Worship is about remembering what God has done, telling others what he has done, and living obediently for him recognizing that God alone preserves our lives. That is worship. Idolatry is remembering what God has done, but giving that credit to something or someone else. At the very center of idolatry, the I of idolatry is me. It is I. It is my proud heart that takes the credit for my self-preservation. I did it. I can do it. I am a good person. You do not enter the kingdom of God and receive salvation and the preservation of your eternal soul by being an American. Nor do you get it by being rich or a member of this church. And you can't get it by being a good person. The only way you can preserve your life is to give it up as a sacrifice, an act of worship to God. He is the one who gives life and sustains life, and provides for your eternal life. God deserves all the credit. You deserve none. I am the eye of idolatry. When I disobey God, I'm saying that I can preserve myself outside of the will of God. Our hearts are factories of idols. We're very good at inventing ways to bring God lower 
and to lift ourselves up. I mentioned earlier that worship involves listening, remembering, and offering ourselves as a sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship, Paul says. And sometimes we're very good at one of these things, but we lose the other two. And so we take consolation. We say that, well, we're one-third worshipers. Well, we're two-thirds idolaters. Worship is a package. If we say that we are worshipers, but we are not listening to God in obedient surrender, we are idolaters. If we say that we are worshipers, but we provide no offering of service to God, we are idolaters. If we say that we are worshipers, but we are not telling others what God has done, we are idolaters. And when the last few days I was thinking about these three things, I've discovered that probably at best I'm one-third worshiper and two-thirds idolater. Isaiah worshipped. He said, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. You have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. David and Solomon were worshipers. They said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. These are two of Israel's greatest kings, ascribing glory that they could have taken for themselves to God. Even Nebuchadnezzar became a worshiper of the one true God, when he said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. There have always been worshipers, people who praise God for preserving their life, people who see God as worthy, and there's always idolaters, people who take the credit for what God has done, people who are at the center of their own universe. Idolatry is a wide path, a smorgasbord of gods. And our hearts manufacture idols quickly. Worship of God is narrow. There is one God, and he alone preserves our lives. Why do we worship God? We worship God because he and he alone is worthy of our worship. Let's bow our heads for prayer.